2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, May 11th, the Dude, Where's My Car edition. Uh, I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, who is six, and Leo, who's three years old. If my voice sounds a little different to you, it's because Eliza is sick and I am staying home with her and am therefore recording myself in my dining room.
3: I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a podcaster and writer, and I am the mother of Henry, who is 15 and a half, Teddy, who is 14 and a half, and stepmother to Lily, who is 16.
4: And I'm Carvel Wallace. I'm a freelance writer out in Oakland, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 11, and Ezra, who is 14.
2: This week, we're going to talk about a really kind of shocking story of parenting pranks gone wrong. And we'll take a question from a listener about how to handle family time after a divorce. Uh, also, we'll have triumphs and fails, recommendations and more. First, a couple of announcements. You should like our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. There are a lot of good and engaged conversations going on there and you should join them. Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And if you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, you should become a member of Slate Plus. You'll get to hear more of this show every week. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Slate designer Holly Allen, who has a tricky parenting query that she's going to ask for our help with. Uh, you can get Slate Plus for 90 days absolutely free. That means you can try out like a bunch of different episodes of this show in Slate Plus without paying anything. Uh by downloading our iOS app in the App Store, go to slate.com/app. Okay, on to the show. Triumphs and Fails, Carvel. You want to go first?
4: Sure. Uh I had a pretty uh lo- a crazy logistical parenting fail this morning, starting last night. So, um I was actually gone Most of the week, I had to go to L.A. to work on a story. I left Thursday afternoon and I came back late last night. And um, when I came back, my flight was supposed to come in at like eight something, but it was delayed. It came in at like nine something. A friend of mine was like, oh, I'll pick you up from the airport. This is a friend of mine who has been out of the country for some time and is now back in the country. So they were like, yeah, I'll pick you up at the airport. So friend comes, I hop in the car, we go To the house, to her house, we are talking and catching up and making small talk and et cetera, et cetera. And then um, it gets so late because it's like three in the morning and I have to go pick up the kids early in the morning at 745 to take them to school from their mom's house. So I'm just like, all right, I'll just stay here. So I stay overnight and then I wake up in the morning. I call a lift. I go back to my house where my car is parked uh, so I could hop in the car, drive out to get the kids. I get to my house. There's no car. It's not in the driveway. That's weird. I go to the end of the block. Car's not there at the end of the block. That's also weird. Go to the other other end of the block. The car's not there either. And now I'm starting to really be like, what is going on? And like, it's been a long time since I have completely forgotten where my car was, but I could not recall Anywhere in my memory about where my car actually existed in space and like this vast panic opened up where I was like, what is time? What is space? Where am I? And so finally, it (laughs) occurred to me to check my Lyft um, his ride history to be like, did I maybe park the car at their mom's house because it's closer to the airport and take a lift from there? So I go to my Lyft history and it turns out I didn't take a lift to the airport at all. There's no ride to the airport. And I'm thoroughly confused Then I remember my car is at the airport, and it's now 20 minutes before I'm supposed to pick up the kids and take them to school. So I get on the phone. I call their mom, and I explain the situation, and she goes, "Ah, okay, which – when, you, when you've known someone for 20 years, that ugh, okay, is loaded with all the times that I've screwed things up logistically because as many things as I'm good at in the world, one thing I'm terrible at is logistics. And one thing she's really good at is logistics. And she's always given me a hard time for, like, failing to organize things logistically in a way that works. So she's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, I'll, I'll take a lift back to the airport, but I'm going to be super late. I'm not going to get there till like, 8.20. She's like, fine. So I call a lift. The lift comes. I get in the lift. And then she goes she texted me like why don't you just come to my house take my car and then you can deal with your car later i'm like but the lift is already here so long story short i had to cancel that lift order another one wait for that one to get there go to the go to her house get the kids drive the kids go back to her house and then she drove me to the airport had to take time off work at which point i then get my car and come over to the studio and the kids ended up still being late for school and i just realized like There's that feeling of I'm doing too much. Like I was so this story that I went to L.A. to work on was is a big story and ended up sort of happening at the last minute. So I've just my head has just been in a cave for about four four or five days straight. And I did not plan or like remember where I was or remember what the logistics were. I just hopped off a plane with no plan. And um, it just made me go Am I doing too much? Like how can I slow down here a little bit so that I don't make these kinds of like boneheaded mistakes. So the kids were fine with it. Uh their mom was ultimately fine fine with it, but she definitely gave me a hard time. And it just was a reminder that um that I I tend to pr- like work is really important to me. And I tend to work hard, I tend to value work, I never want to miss work, I always want to do everything as well as I can at work. But this was just a reminder that I only have so much mental capacity, and if I completely get ensconced in my job, then I tend to make mistakes that impact the rest of my family. So it was a humbling moment for me. That's my fail for this week.
3: And you forgot where your car was.
4: And I forgot <laughs> where my car was. And that's, there's no feeling more like terrifying than standing on a corner in Berkeley and realizing you, your car could be anywhere in the entire Bay Area right now, and you have mm-hmm. no idea where it is.
2: All right. I'm going to go next. Um, I also have a fail. It's a smaller scale fail. I didn't forget where my car was. I did forget something that is just as important to the childhood of my um, beloved daughter, which is for the first time in the history of her teeth, I forgot to do the cash for tooth exchange. Mm. and. I remember the first time she lost a tooth, and I was like, oh, now I'm really stepping up to the big leagues, right? Now I'm the guy. I'm the tooth fairy now. This is so exciting. <laughs> but then she lost, like four, she lost like four more in rapid succession, and by the most recent one, like we put it under her pillow, and then I completely spaced and went to bed. And then she woke up, and the tooth fairy didn't come. Um, fortunately... One of the great things about the Tooth Fairy is we don't know a whole lot of Tooth Fairy lore, right? With Santa Claus, there's all this like associated <laughs> lore, like he lives at the North Pole and he has all these elves and the reindeer and the sled and the chimneys, and like th- th- there's not a lot of flexibility. Whereas with the Tooth Fairy, it's kind of a mystery. Like, we don't know why she comes. We don't know what she wants with all of those teeth or what she does with them. We we, we don't know if it's the same Tooth Fairy everywhere or, or, or if it's like a postal service type bureaucracy that, that divides up all of the kids into different districts or whatever. So, anyway, I was able to say, well... Because you lost your tooth after bedtime, like she had come upstairs at like 9.30 and been like, I lost my tooth, I lost my tooth. Because you lost your tooth after bedtime, it doesn't register with the Tooth Fairy's office until tomorrow. (laughs) And... She completely accepts that. Like, that's just like, oh, that's a, a, another sort of wrinkle in the whole Tooth Fairy deal. So I'll get the thing tomorrow. I guess that's fine. So that was a fail. Nicely concealed uh, in the little nooks and crannies of the unknowns of the Tooth Fairy narrative.
3: Gabe, I have a um, a similar thing that happened to me when Teddy was really little. Um, but I dropped off a Tooth Fairy money envelope at his school and the office called him down from his like kindergarten class and said, and the principal delivered it to him and said, this has never happened before, but the tooth fairy brought your tooth fairy money to school. <laughs> and he totally accepted that. So I think it was a triumph because you've opened the door for like anything to happen. And if you forget again, it's not going to be a big deal.
2: Nice. All right. What do you got, Rebecca.
3: I also have a fail, so I think we're what three for three. <laughs> three for three. Uh, my uh, my son Teddy, as I've explained before, not a great student, doesn't love school, even though he's very smart. Uh, he has discovered this year, and he's in eighth grade. He has discovered singing, and he has joined the chorus. And he has a wonderful, 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 wonderful music teacher who's. One of these teachers who's just like a superstar and she recognized that he was talented. She's pulled him into all this music stuff. He's also playing the bass. He's like basically getting A's in everything related to music and like school about 150% more than he did before because he's now – Has something which is really, really great that he loves. So he was um, asked to be in this music festival this past weekend, which is like a regional thing where the teachers send their best kids to sing like in this really good chorus and their best band instrumentalist to play like in the really good band. Like where I grew up, it was like all county or whatever. But this is like the southwestern part of New Hampshire because we're a much smaller state. So he had this concert and he was super psyched about it. Um he asked to get a haircut the day before. He asked to go buy new clothes for the concert because he's now all of a sudden getting enormous. We do all that. We get him there. My mom drives him over from Vermont to, to to come to the concert with us. We file into this other high school's auditorium and we sit there, you know, through the band performance, and then it's time for the chorus. And then um out walks and sits next to the chorus one of those I'm struggling with this, but this really speaks to what kind of fail it was. Really, really dramatic sign language interpreters who is like interpreting as well as signing all of the chorus songs. And it was it kind of reminded me of that fake sign language person who was at Mandela's funeral. I don't know if you guys remember that, that the person who's just like making up the gestures. It was <sighs> oh, so man. dramatic and so over the top. And I was cracking up, even though I knew it was the wrong thing to do. And I felt horrible about it. And of course, my uh, 15 and a half year old son was sitting next to me and he was laughing. And my husband, who's also 12, was sort of like... And my son, after the performance, comes out and he's like, oh man, it seemed like you're really enjoying the music. You guys were like smiling and laughing. You must have like really enjoyed it. And I was thinking like, I am the worst person in the world. I couldn't pull it together and just look where I was supposed to look, be in the moment and just be like, oh, okay, that was funny and really focus on this thing that was important to my kid. I was distracted by um, the very, very, very dramatic um, sign language interpreter and Totally sent my kid the wrong uh, message about my experience in the audience and so basically had to be like, oh, yeah, it was wonderful. It was so great. And then my son, Henry, of course, says, oh, we were also laughing at the sign language lady, Um, you know, thereby putting a little chink in our parental armor. So that was my fail. I'm very ashamed on many levels, uh, not the least of which is that I was laughing at a sign language interpreter, which is terrible. Uh, Obviously, it makes me a terrible person. But I swear to God, guys, if you'd been there, you probably would have done the same thing. You, you, you guys probably would have just been able to look away a little bit better than I was able to do.
4: Wow. Yeah, that is. <laughs> My prayers are with you and your family. Um...
2: <laughs> <laughs> Three solid fails. <laughs> Yay us. Let's move on. We're going to be talking now about a shocking and, and, and kind of horrifying story from the parenting internet this week. This starts with Mike and Heather Martin, a father and stepmother in Baltimore who have five children, and they were running a YouTube channel called Daddy 5 which had 750,000 subscribers. They were making videos for this channel that were at the intersection of two very popular YouTube genres, family videos and prank videos. And the problem is that when you combine family videos and prank videos, you get videos like this one in which Heather has sprayed disappearing ink on Cody, the youngest son's bedroom carpet. Here's what happens next. Get
3: your fucking ass out there!
2: What the fuck? What did you do? What the fuck? I didn't do that! What the hell is that? I didn't do that! You tell me what you did! I I did you <laughs> I swear. Cody. I did do it. You're taking it. You're fucking lion again.
4: You are no. gonna lose your allowance and no. everything.
2: we did do uh. this.
4: Yes, you did. Stop. Yes, you did. It's just a prank, bruh. Yeah. Whoa.
2: The Martins have taken down their videos and posted an apology. They say some of these videos were faked or exaggerated, some of them.
3: Once people started watching
1: us and, you know, the kids got excited about it and they would try to see how many views they could get and we feel like we went from
3: something that wasn't so bad and and then we just kept going more and more for the shock factor versus reality and to see what could get more views and they kind of feel like some of it's their fault, and it's
1: not their fault. It's, it's not. It's we're the parents, and we should have made better decisions.
2: Last week, we learned that the mother of Cody and one of the other children uh, had been granted emergency custody of them, so they've been taken away from the Martins. Rebecca, let's start with you. What the hell is this?
3: It's not good. I mean, I'll tell you the first thing that I think about With this video, and you see the way the parents are, you know, allegedly pranking their kid, is that they would think in any world a good prank would involve treating their children that way. I mean, you can't help but wonder if this is the kind of language and this is the kind of abuse that happens when the kids are actually in trouble and when it's when it's not a prank. I mean, that was the first thing I thought about, and. Um, You know, I, I think a lot about talk about the family videos and the prank videos. I, I think probably the best executed account that kind of crosses a line a little bit into prank is the bat dad account, that guy who dresses up as Batman and sort of ribs his wife a little and just sort of like puts himself in the frame. He never, ever, ever, ever puts his kids in a situation where he's embarrassing them or talking down to them. It's It's much more self-deprecating. It's much more about him. And says a lot about, you know, the, the kind of sense of humor he has, the kind of you know, situational absurdity and ha- how he sees humor into sort of family life. Um, but this, it, it's, it's, it's hard to even talk about. I've seen it. It's also very hard to listen to. I think it's even harder just to listen to. Um, cause that poor child was clearly in distress, like a tremendous amount of distress, but also didn't seem to be pushing back on the language and the tone, which it 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 leads one to wonder whether or not that's just how he's used to being punished. Uh when in fact he actually does do something or make a mistake.
4: Yeah, I mean this is uh really, really shitty. I mean it's it's terrible to listen to. Like I I just I'm still kind of speechless. Just the fact that if we take a step back that we've reached a moment in our Collective media society where we listen to people talk to their kids this way like I, I just i i can't i mean i it's just fucked up, it really is, and I mean to, to yeah, I agree with Rebecca's point that like whether or not this is a prank has literally zero to do with whether or not this is as wrong as it could possibly be because um that is just not the way to adults to grown. like full-sized adults should talk to a growing child. Like there's just no justification for that. Prank, no prank. I don't care what the kid has done. And spilling ink on a carpet is one of those things that – Obviously as a parent is gonna put you in some type of distress distress. Uh there's all kinds of feelings about home and attachment and if it's a rental situation, how much money have you cost us? How but as a parent, one of the most important things to do is to separate your feelings from the child's behavior. Like once my son, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I was painting his sister's upstairs bedroom, and I had a canister of white paint downstairs. And, uh, it was open and I hadn't, I put the lid on, but I hadn't like malleted the lid fully shut, which was clearly my mistake. So we came home from school one day and my son, uh, just while we're getting settled, and putting down the keys, people are taking off the backpacks. My son, just in a moment of curiosity, picks up the the canister of paint, carries it over to the couch that I just bought like two weeks ago, sets the paint on the arm of the couch, opens up the lid of of the thing. And then of course... He loses balance of the paint canister in the arm of the couch, douses the entire couch in white paint. And the the feelings that went through me in that moment were horrific. There were so many. I just bought this couch. I don't have the money. This thing is ruined. What could you have been thinking? What is wrong with you? These are the feelings that I had. I don't remember what I said to him in that moment, but I do remember deciding that it's really important that what that what I feel is this huge consequence isn't matched up with what his action was his action was he was a kid who was curious about a big old thing of white paint which let's face it is a transfixing image and he wants to see what's up with it that's not a crime like that's not a crime the consequence may be terrible my feelings about the consequence may be terrible the amount of money that i'm thinking of may be terrible but none of that has to do with what he did so you cannot treat a kid like they did something that's responsible for all your feelings My feelings in that moment are my feelings as an adult, as a, as a, as a moneymaker and all that stuff. But he didn't, he wasn't like, I'm going to ruin my dad's couch and destroy my dad's money and destroy our house. Ha ha. He just was like, this is, this thing looks fascinating. This huge thing of clean white paint. I want to find out more about it. So, I mean, there's no justification for talking to kids this way ever, ever prank or no prank. So I think it's unfortunate that it came to this. I don't know. I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know if the protective custody thing is warranted or not. But I have to say that there is nothing good or justifiable or that you can explain away about the audio that we just heard.
3: You know, the other thing too, Carvel, is you you talk about having nothing to do with a a prank, and I agree with you that that behavior is just abuse, whether it's real or fake. It's it's just abuse, period. Um, But there's also something... Really uncomfortable for me about creating a brand around shaming and embarrassing mm-hmm. your kids. It's like they didn't mm-hmm. opt into this. This is why, you know, I, I used the mm-hmm. Bat Dad comparison because. The kids in the bat dad videos are clearly opting in. You know, they, they, they know it. They like it. They participate. Um, and you know, y- y- people might have mixed feelings about that too. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't, it just doesn't bother me that way. Like I would never post a photo of one of my kids on my personal social media accounts that. I thought might be embarrassing to them. And typically I usually ask them if if, you know, because i alright, if I share this, you know, if I think it might be like you know, that one I posted one recently of them sleeping in, in the lawn chairs on our vacation and I was like, I'm I'm posting this. Are you guys okay with that? Because you feel like that's not okay either. They didn't choose to have a parent with thousands mm-hmm. of Twitter followers. They didn't choose to have parents with seven hundred and fifty thousand YouTube followers. And for them to use that platform for the sole purpose of creating entertainment around shaming and embarrassing them is another layer that just is just really really yeah. bad about yeah. this I think
2: What was going on with the Martins is connected to that they did they did bring the kids in like, what they're saying now is that the kids were doing a certain amount of shtick that, like, Cody, the kid being yelled at in that video, is in on the joke and is very good at performing distress and at crying or whatever. And and I don't know if that's true of that specific individual video, but it, it's certainly clear from other videos they've done that the kids were engaged in the goal of making these videos and putting them on YouTube and getting zillions of followers and then making money from it and getting toys and stuff out of the money that they made from advertising on their YouTube channel. Like the parents had, had implicated the children in this whole project. I, I I feel like that's troubling in its own way. Well, yeah, And like,
4: I mean, yes, that's troubling in its own way, but what's most important about that is that that is not the intent of the videos in the public sphere, right? The the videos aren't like, Mm -hmm. Hey, we're a family of actors and we're going to perform this scene that we know is fake. Right, The intent in putting this out there is that the, the average viewer is supposed to believe, for the sake of entertainment, that the kid is being attacked in this way. And so that, to me, is a key difference. I mean, you can write and perform a scene that, in, that in, involves bad behavior, but we have to know that this is fiction. And the point of that YouTube video is to hide the fact that it's fiction from the, from the viewer. Which means that in its place, you're advancing the idea that this is reality. And so in doing that, you're advancing an idea of parenting that is that is incredibly inappropriate, gross, disgusting, and abusive. And so I don't really, I mean, I, I'm not swayed. My My point of view doesn't change based on that. To answer your question about whether or not how I feel about the fact that the kids are in on this, I think it's really hard. I think consent of this type is really tricky with kids of this age. And kids want fame. We all know that kids in this generation, everyone wants to be a YouTuber. Everyone wants YouTube fame. But I think that the parents have displayed at the best a great deal of emotional irresponsibility by putting the kids in a position to say, hey, can you act out this horrific abuse? And in exchange, you'll get some stuff. You know what I mean? That's also gross. So I'm not, I'm not convinced yeah. here.
2: We have a call now from listener Amy. Uh, who is going through a divorce and uh, called to ask for some advice.
1: Hi guys, Um, my name is Amy and uh, my question is this. So, I have two children, Um, I have a four-and-a-half-year-old and a six-year-old, and and, um, my kids dad and I are separated, Um, we're currently going through an amicable divorce, thank goodness. Um, and my question is, my four-year-old, um, really wants to spend a lot of time with us together, um, as a family. Um, and I guess I just wanted to know your thoughts on this. Um, you know, though we do get along, um, I kind of feel like, um, it's, well, I know it's unhealthy for me, um, to do that, um in my recovery through this whole process. And I'm also afraid that it's going to send the wrong message to the kids. Um, like we, mommy and daddy are eventually going to get back together, which we're not. So, um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Um, you know, we are both dating other people and, you know, the kids have seen us with these other people and they seem happy with these other people and things seem to be going well with that. Um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to know what your feelings are. Um, on
4: that issue and thanks carvel what do you think there's uh, so much in that call that is unsaid i am curious about the phrase unhealthy for me given my recovery and where i'm at because that to me is a um is a is kind of sort of the whole thing turns on that um i can speak to our own experience with so okay a couple things so um i think that it's perfectly normal for a kid to say, I like it better when mom and dad uh, are together. And um, I tend to believe that if there's any way that you can, to some extent, whether it's an hour or two a week, satisfy that request, then you should, if you can. Right? doesn't mean that you have to spend every night together, but that I find we found at the beginning when we weren't maybe getting along as well, that it was helpful to carve out a very specific time and place at which we were all going to be together the the four of us as a family whether that's like dinner on sunday night brunch on saturday dinner on wednesday whatever the thing is i think that having if the if the relationship if there's difficulty for the adults around that then i think setting super clear boundaries is helpful for everyone i think kids do really well with clear boundaries even if they don't like them they at least know what to expect and um um, and it helps transitions go easier because a lot of what, in my experience, divorce is about is transitions. Transitions are very hard for kids. They're transitioning in this huge way from this one idea of a family to another idea of a family, but also built into that, there's all these tiny transitions from mom's house to dad's house, from this style of parenting to that style of parenting. There's a whole bunch of transitions that are going on, and one of the things that we learned over time that, it's really important to do is to do everything you can to help kids manage transitions as effectively as possible and clear boundaries help with that because then the kids can get onto the business of making the adjustments rather than staying stuck in that place of, can I push here and make it differently? Can I do this? Can I do that? If I throw a tantrum, will I get this other thing? So I would say that assuming, and again, I'm going back to that phrase, it's not healthy for me given where I'm at in my recovery from this situation At the beginning of the call, she also said it was amicable. So my question is, on the condition, or my, I guess, advice is on the condition that there's some healthy way you can spend some discreet time of the week as a family, then you should do it. If there's no healthy way to do that, then you simply can't. And the kid has to accept that. The second thing I'm going to say is that these desires in our experience tend to be worse or more strong for the kids, the closer they are to the to the change event. So because your kid is now saying, I would like this time, doesn't mean that in four years, she's going to do that. And it doesn't mean that if you give this time now, that in four years, this kid is going to be pushing for some advanced level of it. So I think your fear about setting up an expectation that there's going to be a reunion is not unfounded, but isn't uh realistic enough to make decisions based upon if that makes sense, so it's a difficult situation. Divorce is obviously very hard for everyone um so i you know i just I wish you the best of luck with that. but again, my advice is if you can all, at all fulfill that request in a clear way, then uh I would advise to go ahead and do that i disagree <laughs> good
3: <laughs> uh and it, which is a rare a rare moment where you mm. and I disagree carvel um only because. <laughs> To me, it's not a turn, the unhealthy for me thing. I think that pretty much says everything that mm. I need to know. Um, I have been on every side of this. My divorce was technically amicable, meaning that we did not go to court and battle it out. It was settled with, you know, a, a moderator, you know, a mediator. And it was it was uh, hammered out, you know, very logistically. And there was not screaming and yelling and throwing things. But it was still a breakup and we initially tried to do um you know birthday parties that kind of thing just do one where we would both be there and do it on neutral territory and stuff and then we went through a long period of time where my ex-husband uh wanted absolute separation so much so that we would not even be able to go to school meetings together if the school wanted to meet with us we'd have to do it separately and that was not good either um when I say I've been on the other side of this, I'm talking about my stepdaughter who very much wanted time where her dad and mom were together and it was difficult. And as one of the things that she did when she was a lot younger, um, closer to the age that this woman's child is, but she was, you know, seven, eight years old is she would create situations that force mm. them to be together. Like there would be She'd be very upset. You know, she would she would uh, and she would learn that if she was very upset and it was about the divorce that then the parents would get together and they would all talk as a family. So it didn't help her um, not it didn't help her move on. It didn't help her grow in that area because she was being positively reinforced uh, when she would have a, a a breakdown or a drama or a reason to get, to get her mom and dad in a room together. And it was only when they started saying no that she then started to feel better about her life. It was a very interesting change. I mean, the only other thing I will say is that I think the time for there to be mom and dad together time is when it's around something to having to do with the kids. I think it's great when divorced parents, if they get along reasonably well, can sit together at school concerts. I think it's great if they can figure out a way to invite each other to birthday parties for their throwing with the kids and be together in a room and be civil and start modeling that relationship that like... When you guys grow up and get married, you're not going to have to seat us 100 feet apart because we're able to be in the same room together and we like each other and respect each other. But most importantly, it's about you. We love you. We're here for you as united front. I think building family time around those events is the way to go rather than setting up a family time for family time's sake uh, situation because I worry that it does create – I don't want to I don't think that she's going to think that you guys are getting back together in 10 years either, but you may find yourself on a slippery slope where then it's not enough. And it may have it may take a toll on your new relationships and it may take a toll on other family dynamics if your other kids don't want that mom and dad together thing. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm a little bit in a different place than you are on this. I say no, unless it's an event that's specifically about the kids. Oh, I
4: hope you've been super helpful. The answer is either yes. Or no, is what we've concluded. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, what you say makes a lot of sense, and you bring up points that I hadn't yet considered. And I, and I, 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 yeah. And like our, our, it seems that our situation is somewhat unusual in how well we've been able to get along and operate as a, in all combinations, the two of us, the you know, the two of us and one kid, the two of us and another kid, all four of us. And so sometimes, yeah, I, I do lose, I, I do like misunderstand when people are like no we we can't i can't be with this person even in time and space no matter what we're doing um so i'm glad that you brought that up because uh yeah i mean you bring up good points that i hadn't thought of
2: I think Rebecca's point about organizing it around the kids' activities rather than around like, and now mom and dad are getting together and hanging out with you guys um, seems very wise because you want the kids to know, presumably, that they will always have both parents like on their side no matter what. Uh, and you also want them to know that mom and dad are now like building their lives separate from one another. And, and that's, you got to get both of those messages across at once. I mean, what do I know? I've never been <sighs> through this. Um, but I say, Amy, listen to Rebecca rather than call. <laughs> <Ignore Yes>!
4: <laughs> 20 points, Rebecca.
2: <laughs> Thank you for the call, Amy. I hope that was helpful. If you've got a parenting conundrum that you'd like us to take on, uh, there are a lot of ways you can send it to us. You can email it to us at slate.com. You can message us via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash momanddadarefighting. Or you can do what Amy did and call our voicemail number, which is 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-7833. It's time now for recommendations where we recommend something to you that we have found helpful or enjoyable in our parenting activities. Uh, I'm going to recommend a series of books, the Arabelle and Mortimer books by the English children's writer, Joan Aitken. Uh, I used to read these books when I was a kid, and then recently on a long car journey, I downloaded one of them in audiobook form, and Eliza spent like three hours absolutely silent in the back of the car uh, listening to the first book. Uh, These books are about a little girl called Arabelle and her pet raven, Mortimer, who's always getting into trouble and all kinds of scrapes and hijinks. They're nicely written. Uh, And they, I think, were really written to be read aloud. And so the audiobook version is lively and enjoyable and has lots of great voices and characters. Um, You can find it on Audible. Uh, The book is uh, Arabelle's Raven from the Arabelle and Mortimer series by Joan Aitken. Rebecca, what do you recommend?
3: Uh, mine is a little more lowbrow, and it's actually my something that my kids have aged out of, but it's something I would have liked when they were a little bit younger, early preteens, uh, when, by the way, my kids were watching iCarly, the best sitcom ever created for children and their parents together. Um, But there's been nothing that's come up since then that I've thought, oh, wow, I would have wanted to watch this with my kids when they were 11 or 12, but I just ran across one. So I just want to mention it, and it's an unlikely pick. Uh, Netflix has a reboot of One Day at a Time that is actually really good. Um, it's got a laugh track, which some people find off-putting. I get it, but it is what it is. Norman Lear actually created and works on the show. Uh, Rita Moreno is on the show. It's been rebooted about a Cuban-American family. The dialogue is pretty well written. The kid actors are kind of appealing. Um, so if you have kids who you know, you want to watch a TV show with, doesn't make you want to stab yourself in the face, uh, you might enjoy this One Day at a Time reboot. I watch an episode out of Curiosity. And I thought it was actually pretty funny. Uh, it's pretty, pretty darn good. So that's my recommendation. One day at a time on Netflix.
2: All right, Carvel, what's your recommendation?
4: So my recommendation actually is related to the the call we just had, which is something that I just remembered that we did. I actually came in with another recommendation, but I just remembered this one. My recommendation is something we did right after we separated, um, and we started running two households, which is we did once a month. We did family. A family meeting, usually on a Saturday morning, where we had a whole slate of rules about how to go about it. And I'm going to give you a breakdown of some of the rules that we followed. One is that the family meeting could only be 40 minutes. The other one is that the topics that were going to be discussed at the family meeting had to be brought up before the meeting. So there had to be an agenda. So if it was like... Dad's house doesn't have enough, like, maple syrup, and I want different kind of maple syrup, then that would be a topic that we would discuss. The third rule that we had is we had a talking teddy bear that only one person, the person who was holding the teddy bear, could talk at a time, which we <laughs> mostly adhered to, but that got a little contentious with the siblings, but they more or less did it. Um, and then the fourth rule that we had was that, and this is when our kids got older, we were able to do this, when they were, say, six and eight. We took turns being the meeting chair, the person who kind of, like the executor of the meeting rules. And so the six year old would do it. then the eight year old would do it. Then the mom would do it. Then I would do it. And we did this maybe, I would say a total of six times. And, um, every time we did it, we ended up sort of, the kids ended up being able to talk about something in a clear way that they wanted to bring up to both parents, but hadn't figured out a way to yet. So, This is a recommendation that worked for us. I don't know that it will work for everyone, but I, I think that when our family separated, the thing that we realized most directly is that the channels of communication were screwed up immediately. Parents were telling each other one thing. Kids were telling one parent one thing, telling another parent another thing. And this family meeting structure that we did once a month, we capped it at 40 minutes, otherwise it could go on forever, was an opportunity to at least get some of that
2: communication
4: all on the same
2: page.
3: So evolved. (laughs)
2: <laughs> okay. That's our show. Thanks to Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy for joining me. We'll all be back next week. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. Slate Podcasting's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our managing producer is June Thomas. Slate Podcasting is part of the Panoply Network, of which Andy Bowers is the chief content officer. See you next time.